like as a critic, I'm always kind of interested in, okay, what is the history here, right? Because I think when you're thinking about marginalized communities, you can say this is the first person to do this, but there could have been 10, 15, 20, 30 more if the system was not racist or sexist or, you know, aligned against them. And so I'm always kind of interested in like, okay, well, but what's the context? Welcome to the November 12th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. If you're on social media and interested in art, you may have already encountered the guest for this episode. He's one of the young rising stars of art criticism in New York, Antoine Sargent, and he goes by the moniker Sir Sargent. I invited our news editor, Jasmine Weber, to join me for this interview. Antoine joined us for a conversation about the melding of art, music, fashion, and culture, and spoke to us about building lasting relationships with Black artists and the unsung heroes of Black art history finally getting their due. I should start by saying I've known Antoine for years, even before he was an art writer, so it's great to see him evolve into the figure he is today. So what do you think makes Antoine unique, Jasmine? Antoine's investment in the well-being of Black artists and curators feels rarely genuine, which is a sensitivity art critics often underrate. I agree, and it's hard to find a writer so dedicated to a group of artists that he believes in, rather than going from one trend or hotshot artist to another. So let's get started. Great. So we have Antoine Sargent in the studio. Hi, Antoine. Hi, Hag. And uh, I'm joined by Jasmine Weber as well. Hi. So we wanted to get to know Antoine Sargent, Sir Sargent on social media, as you're known. Like, where's the Sir Sargent from? It was really just kind of a, a joke. I don't know. I, I didn't really kind of understand social back in, what, 2011, 2012, when I made that uh, handle. And I was like, I just wanted something that was kind of catchy. And for me, that it was catchy. And so I just put Sir Sargent and now. <laughs> well, you definitely of, caught up on social media. It was like when it was like when Instagram <laughs> first came out, actually, and I was a senior in college and downloaded the app and it was like you know the time when you were just you downloaded it just for like the filters right and i was like okay i need a name and then my aim like name from back in the day was like aunt tweezy <laughs> and i was like maybe that's not what we want to go with and so i so sergeant then was using the filters and you know here we are all these years right? later the legend is born <laughs> so you're originally from chicago and you went to school in dc area yeah, I went to Georgetown. And then you arrived in New York in 2011? 2011. Well, to okay. teach. To, to teach. teach. Yes, yeah. right. When I first met you, you were a, a teacher. Yeah, a kindergarten uh, teacher. Kindergarten teacher. Yeah. So what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah, I know. It's, it's a weird kind of, I mean, what kind of led to that really was I was at Georgetown and I had always written. I had, I, in high school, my, me and my friends had a magazine called The Philosopher. Um, yes, it was as awful as the title suggests. Um, <laughs> and in college, we were for the college newspaper. So I, writing had always been a thing that right. I did. But it was 2011. And like, you know, the big story I remember from 2011 is you know, New York Times, every week there's a new story in New York Times dying, and then there's like this big bell out of the New York Times and these exposés and, you know, profiles. And so I was like, cool, so can't do that. Um, and all my friends went into banking. So you wanted to be a writer initially. I you know, I it has something that I always knew I wanted to do. I right. didn't know if I could do it professionally. Right. And so I was like, okay, maybe in my mind, I was like, okay, I'll go and I'll become a lawyer and then I can write on a side because I'll be really 
rich. You you're, know, like that's, yeah. that's, that's like something your parents tell you. To exactly. Make. Right. Yeah. I had totally bought into that. Like <laughs> my fantasy. mom wanted me to be a lawyer who wrote on the side. Exactly. That's literally I, that's what she tried yeah. to drill into me. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing was I moved to New York to do Teach for America because service, you know, is very important to yeah, me. It's incredible. And I wanted to kind of have a direct relationship to, I didn't want to work for a big NGO or a big organization. I wanted to be there every day, kind of affecting change, as I thought. And Teach for America seems like a good opportunity to do that. Um, and so, Do you I, want to explain what that was for people who may not know yeah, that program? So Teach for America is a national program where they kind of help kind of recruit teachers across the country to work in low-income neighborhoods. I know Teach for America kind of gets, you know, bad rap in some places, and I think that that's a rightful debate. You know, I think when you think about kids' educations, especially kids in low-income communities, what one of the things that I think I learned was that you need stability in those neighborhoods and you mm -hmm. need stability in those classrooms because a school is an institution, you know, that really kind of, you know, benefits from institutional knowledge and people being there for the long haul. And so I think the model itself, while well-intentioned, two years doesn't really kind of cut it, right? You know and what so I love about this? I mean, first, having known you, it shows your sensitivity which I think is what makes you a good arts writer, Thanks. personally. But I just love what you describe because I think that's also your attitude towards artists, which is right. long-term relationships right. that develop. Right. And exactly. I think, at least I'll say as an arts editor, it's rare to find someone right. that wants to do that and right. not just write about the most famous or exactly. the most you know, bankable artists exactly. or whatever. So where does that come from? I think it comes from like my kind of early kind of interest in art. I mean, I tell a story where in 2012, I went to the Book Museum to see Micheline Thomas' show there, her survey. Mm -hmm. I went with Jaja. My Jaja Faye, who Faye. is your best friend, best who friend. works at the Jewish Museum mm -hmm. in right. the Communications Building um, Department, and is an internet celebrity in her own right. Yeah, <laughs> she's definitely <laughs> that. And in those days, Jaja took me everywhere. You know, I had no idea what the art world was, I had no idea, you know. You, you were you a could, babe in the city. Yeah. And so yeah. she really kind of, I mean, shout out to her for that. But I went and I walked in and I see this painting, large scale monument to work, three women, three black women kind of sitting that kind of rehashed Monet work. And I was like, oh my God, like how would I have never seen this before? And it really kind of reminded me of my mother, my grandmother, my sister, and kind of that relationship that you don't necessarily see celebrated in the culture. And I right. go, well, who is this? And, you know, <laughs> Googling and all of this. And I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted. And so I said, I'll write about it myself. And so at the time, I had a blog at the Huffington Post that I was given from an earlier article that I wrote about Don Lemon, of all people. <laughs> um, this was this is pre-woke Don Lemon, you know? Like, it was like when he was very much problematic. And I was like, I'll just start doing it myself. And I sent some pitches and stuff, and Noah responded. And I was like, okay, well, I still believe very strongly in this. And I believe in the conversation around race and sexuality and gender and, you know, representation and power that she's having, you know, right now, but also with the past. And I really do think it's a conversation that I, I'm interested in. And so, I mean, just taking Michelin as an example, we've had, you know, countless kind of conversations, interview magazines. Have, have, you, to have you told her that story? I have not yet. That, but also <laughs> we're having, it's kind of a full circle moment. It, it sticks with this idea of like being in constant conversation with artists, which is what I kind of love about criticism and I love about writing, is that 
artists change over time, right? Mm -hmm. They have different concerns from one project or one work to the next. And I, for me, it was like, it was about kind of trying to capture a total conversation or a conversation that evolves over a number of years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so with Micheline, it's been, you know, I've written for about her advice. I've written about her kind of curatorial series, uh, Tete a Tete and Creators Project. We had a long conversation uh, a couple of years ago about the works that she did around the color purple that was at the Aspen Museum of Art that was in um, was Interview Magazine. Museum. Yeah. Then last year she calls me and goes, can you write an essay for my catalog? And then she asked me to write another essay for another catalog. And that's coming out in two weeks. And now we're going to be in conversation at the AGO on the 28th. The Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto. To, in yeah. Toronto, coinciding with the opening of her traveling survey. So there's these long kind of yeah. histories of conversations. And that just doesn't happen with, you know, kind of like these mega famous artists. It also yeah. happens with, you know, people, you know, like A. Walariscu, Jordan Castile, yeah. you know. So what do you think they get from you? You know, this is a bigger question, I think, because yeah. relationships between artists and critics are evolving. Right. You know, for they're sure. not what it used to be. Oh, for sure. But yeah. what do you think they get from you in terms of what is that relationship like? You've talked a little bit about seeing sort of your own worldview a little yep. and seeing that represent Right. through some of their work. Right. So what do you think? I think that they get someone who is committed to black artistic production. I think they get somebody who's committed. Because for me, generally, the first interaction I have, especially with a young artist, a young black artist, is usually like, tell me what you're trying to do. I don't necessarily approach it from like, I need to, you know, be critical or criticize. Mm -hmm. Tell me what the project is. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, kind of allows those artists to just get their ideas out there first. Right. And then later, if I come back and write something that's critical or, you know, say I don't necessarily believe in this or whatever, at least we have those things out there, right? You can mm -hmm. compare yep. artistic intent to then how it's being perceived in the world, right? And I think for me, it seems A, fair, and B, it seems like we're having a whole conversation here and it's not just the critic had the final word. And I don't know if that is something that I necessarily found, you know, fidelity in. Like, You're right. I Sometimes want, it mm -hmm. felt like a punctuation mark and yeah. really what we do anymore is not a punctuation mark. Well, right. It's more a comma. Comma, right. <laughs> yeah. It's a comma. That's it's an adding to a conversation, right? right? And it's important that, because, you know, we work in the media, right? Mm -hmm. And so, if, you know, I write something for you guys or I write something for the Times or whatever. That's a bigger microphone right. than any artist of a, you know, some artists, huge artists, and they can call up the time and say, I want it, you know, whatever, yep. and that's fine, but that most people don't. And it's about being ethical and like having and saying, okay, at least we have them on a record saying this is what the work is about. And then I strongly agree or agree or whatever, you know? Got it. And so I've, I've seen you speak about the fact that it took you a while to become comfortable calling yourself an art critic. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm curious to hear the ways that these nuances of race and gender and sexuality play into the way that you're able to better represent artists because they're able to share with you their intentions in a way that wasn't necessarily possible before. And the fact that also, now that so much of art criticism is happening online, there's this exploding audience for who is reading it and who's becoming interested in it. And so it seems as though it's really shifted the way that art critics have to handle their relationships with artists and sort of who they're writing for and who they're able to reach by telling the stories of these artists. So I'm interested just to hear how that plays in. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to say. I think part of it is, as you rightfully suggested, I mean, when I was doing this in 2012 even, there was just nobody else that looked like me. I mean, Hilton 
but it's Hilton. You know what I mean? It's like it's like Hilton that's Alice. a yeah Hilton Alice who's like a titan. You know, like and then you get people on occasion. So I was like, first and foremost, like I'm in a world that there is no one that just kind of on a very basic level like that looks like me, talks like me, has this perspective. And so I think you go through a little. Am I am I a critic? You know? Did you find it hostile at all? I think I find it more hostile now, quite frankly. I think like as the profile has, you know, grown and, you know, as I've been able to kind of like, you know, establish a voice and write for a lot of different places. It's actually interesting because like, you know, there have been artists who I haven't covered who have taken that as some type of slight or some oh. type of you only cover these type of artists from these type of schools, from these type of backgrounds. And I'm like... First of all, you're just not intimately familiar with the work because that's just not true. <laughs> Secondly, what I see in that kind of, you know, people have blocked me on Instagram and, you know, subtweeted me and stuff like that. And what I see in that is that they are frustrated with the system. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm the closest thing that looks like them that represents the system, right? Like, and so I think more now, I think I have issues than before. Because before, frankly, no one gave a shit. You know, no one cared. They were like, oh, this, he's like just out here taking photos of himself. Yeah, and I, I'm with you. I feel the same way. It's sort of like it changes the yeah. nature of it. But I, I think that's a really interesting point of the fact that they see you as the system now in a way that you're like wait what yeah. like i'm still trying to pay my bills yeah. you know i'm still trying to like make a living so why like what what is that because i'll tell you personally i think it's partly the field we work in we work in a luxury industry right which is based on insecurities uh -huh. you know so For is sure. that what it is that's being triggered it's definitely a luxury industry but what comes with that right the added thing of like the Instagram microphone, the added thing of like being in the magazines and the added, you know, I think people look at pictures wherever you see them and then you construct kind of your own fantasy around that person, right? And then I also think that, you know, now that like, I'm writing for the Times art section. And then, I mean, I can't tell you after that first article came out, you know, like how many notes I got saying like, oh my God, I have always loved your, you know, and not saying that I am not someone that needs that. I mean, it's just interesting that, I don't know, I never thought of myself as this part of the system. And then it's like, well, you know, people are like, well, why do you only write for, you know, uh, mainstream publications? And for me, it was not so much saying that I wouldn't write for, you know, black publications or more indie publications. It was more about making a point that our voices weren't represented there. And but that has also as you know, things have, you know, kind of gone on that has been twisted as a negative, yeah. you know, and so well, it reminds me a little of what Kerry James Marshall says about why he was like, I just wanted to put the black body kind of in the museum, mm -hmm. you know, and it feels very similar to that. I think that also there's a certain degree of misplacing blame. Now that black critics and curators have a little bit more of a voice in the mainstream art industry, there's a lot of people who don't understand the fact that those people are still sort of grasping to even like allow these artists that degree of representation and so rather than being angry with the fact that despite the fact that black artists and critics and curators are getting a little bit more leverage in the industry there's still so much more that could be given to them and right. handed to them and so rather than understanding the fact that the people who deserve this level of criticism are those who are hiring these these critics and curators it's a it's a bit more simple to ask, why aren't you covering right. me? Why are you not working for these publications? And it's because if the resources aren't being given to you to cover right. every single artist right. on the market, right. that's not necessarily right. something that you can fix. Yeah, in a, but I in also think, I think people do also probably think that like, 
he's being given all the resources. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, in, in that, yeah. because it becomes because when you it, it's it's like this kind of two way thing. And I, I mean, I think to your point, it is definitely about a system. I think like when you think about you know in this moment, you think about the Brooklyn Museum controversy, right? Mm-hmm. And you think about and who I love, you know, and her leadership of that museum. And you think about a diverse hiring process turned up that curator, right? Right. Not saying that the curator, and this is also not to say that the curator didn't have a right, because she totally does, or that she wasn't educated, because she totally is. But it's about, if you're looking at the same pipelines, you're probably going to get the same result, no matter who's looking at them, right? It could be black or whatever. If you're looking at the, the traditional pipelines, because the pipeline is the issue, right? Not the, you know what I mean? And so, and so I think like that a lot more of our attention needs to be focused on the pipelines, the structures, and the way that we are, you know, continually to maintain these institutions. You know, those institutions are only as strong as the people inside of them. And so I think that we need to do more work on that. I'm not saying that, like, if I get something wrong, call me out. I have been called out. You know, like, I love, you know, having that feedback because I think when you are in a situation where you are, you know, the only one or one of the few, people are afraid to criticize you. And people are afraid, you know, because it's this other thing where it's like, you know, I just need to stand with the race or I need to stand with, you know, whoever. And so I think that like, you know, I'm not sitting here saying beyond criticism. I'm just saying that like, you know, I that's what I do for a living. So I, you know, you need to be able to take it, right? And so I think that like these are all interesting questions right now because we're saying that we've made, you know, this progress that really we haven't. And I think we need to do more interrogating of that, you know. Can I can I introduce a bit more of a cynical take? Yeah. Just because I think in terms of the museums and stuff, I agree with you, the pipeline's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. But having run a publication Mm -hmm. and knowing how to reach out to different kinds of writers, I'm still super surprised how Lily White Arts Journalism is in New York. As an example. Mm -hmm. Do you know? So I do think that there's an aspect of that, but I do I do notice that there are increasingly some voices only talking about the structures to somehow remove blame from them. Right. And there is that. So I just want to say because there is that bigger conversation too yeah i also think there's a just there's this like as much as more people are being coming interested in art criticism and journalism a lot of people that i speak to a lot of like my friends who write about you know who write about culture and stuff like that will come to me and go I really want to write about some art. Like, do you think, like, art is still this thing that, like, you know, it's like race, like how, like, people start, you know, white people start writing about race and they just get stupid, you know? And you're just like, <laughs> apply the same level of thinking. You know what I mean? Like, and then it's it's the same. It's like, you like you, you see really intelligent people just like, I don't know what to think about this. How do you know? Like, how you know? And you're just kind of like, use your critical thinking skills, right. you know, like think through it. And so I think if we can do some work around like demystify, you know, like you could call it a luxury, mm-hmm. you know, good. And to be clear, it's only partly a luxury. Right. You know, we work right. in other parts of it. Too. Right, exactly. And so, but, the, but again, the problem is like when, you know, it's like when headlines like Carrie James Marshall painting oh. 21 million, you know, 0.5 million dollars. And, you know, and, and that's the headline and that's the juicy headline. And that's what people are reading. Then, yes, it reinforces this idea that art is a commodity. And that now Carrie, who has worked a lifetime to get his work recognized and have his position recognized. And, you know, the argument is that we deserve to be in these institutions, too. Right. And then you, you, you it's like they made this moment about like black um 
black excellence. Diddy buys this painting, and then Carrie is this, you know, and then, but he was like, well, he doesn't see any of the money. So let, let's just give background for people who may not yeah. know. So first of all, the Brooklyn Museum that we talked about, where that was specifically in the case where the African curator mm -hmm. right. is a white woman, and there was a controversy in that some people thought, how is this possible in a museum, that, in a borough that's like a third black and all these types of things. Now, the Carrie James Marshall is specifically in reference to the painting that sold for 21 million mm -hmm. and was bought by P. Diddy. And I think Carrie James Marshall had a great quote saying it was the first time there was a battle over capital and a black person won. Yeah. It was like some great quote like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think what I heard was the person who wanted that painting was Eli Brode. So when you had the bidding, the bidding back and <laughs> That's forth. That's delicious. Because they were like, well, why the gallery bidding? Who's the gallery bidding on behalf of? And I guess that's a piece of news that people didn't know. But, you know, and so I think when he said that, that's what he was kind of alluding to. But I also think to problematize that a little bit more, it's like he was gracious about it in ways that, or at least publicly gracious about it in ways that it kind of, you know, fucked when you have a work that sells for $25,000 and it's being flipped for $21.5 million and you don't see any of it, you know? And you can say, well, it went, at least when it went to a black man, well, that's kind of a constellation prize, really, when you're an artist. And so things like that, things where we just kind of like take these like kind of like flimsy, you know, representations and say, black man, black man, yes, equals power. And it's like, no, that's not who won there. You know, the auction house, you know, like the, the the city of Chicago, you know, like things like that, you know, like, and you Let's don't talk about the Chicago stuff specifically, yeah, because I, I mean, yeah. you know, Carrie James Marshall had two murals, one of which sold and now they're trying, they stopped selling. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about that aspect yeah. of the story? From what I've been reading, he's becoming more and more vocal about how the city of Chicago is basically like pimping him, you know, and there was under no circumstances. So the background of that is he, Carrie James Marshall has been a really great advocate and ambassador for art in Chicago. And he has made murals and he has made paintings that he sold to the city and to sit in public spaces in that city. Recently, he even last year even made a huge mural downtown, right, celebrating black women. And, you know, he's a world famous artist and he could literally charge the city insane amount of money to do this stuff. And he does not, which speaks to his character. And so there's been incidences over the last few years. And so the thing that also came out was a couple of years ago, he donated a piece of art to the MC Chicago for their benefit auction. All First right. of all, like yeah. an artist of that statue generally do not donate works like that. And so someone bought it for like $100,000 and then flipped it for millions. You know, and so like, I'm not speaking for him, I'm not trying to, but to see that you have to say, okay, He's locked out of the system for basically most of his career. And by the way, most of his peers have totally been locked out, you know, and will never get recognized the recognition they deserve. Who are some of those peers? Well, I, you know, I think that Carrie has, you know, like, for example, right, like we're now just his mentor, Charles White, right, he has this retrospective at MoMA. And it's like, we're now just being reintroduced to his work, right? You think about, he lived in California, right, grew up in California, but he's, he was born in Alabama, right? 
Um, and he was around that black arts, you know, movement, right? And so you think about Noah Pifroy, who, you know, people right. know and don't know. You think about um, Betty Saar, who has this kind of interest relationship, has never, you know, not still not getting the recognition that she deserves, not had, for example, a major show um, at, you know, one of the big institutions in New York, right? Well, and she has inspired basically everybody, right? right? And so, I mean, the list kind of goes on and on and on. You think about, you know, Ed Clark, who still is, I mean, you know, he made these kind of strides in how people paint. You know, shaped canvas is said to be a contemporary um, experiment invention that he did before Japser Johns, before Ellsworth Kelly, before all, you know, the, the kind of the white artists that get kind of recognized for that type of painting. And so there was no guarantee even a decade ago that Carrie James Marshall would break through in the ways that he did, right? And so like, I think we have to hold that, even in moments of critical success, that it does not happen for a lot of people. And it doesn't happen for a lot of people, not because they're not good, it's because of the way that they're racialized, sexualized, and you know, you know what I mean? Because of the way that they're racialized and sexualized. And I think I try to bring that to any conversation I'm having, the history and the context. I think it's really super important to do that. So, so many of the artists that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. Betty Saar and Noah Purifoy, are on view right now in Sullivanation at the Brooklyn Museum. Right. And so I think that that's such a good example of sort of putting this history that you're talking about into public consciousness right. and allowing people to sort of explore these artists who have been overlooked for so many decades, right. despite the monumental impact that they've had on their communities right. and then on just artists nationally and internationally. Right. And so I'm interested to hear from you any sort of exhibitions that you think right now are succeeding at that, at, at this like reupholstering of art history to include these artists who have been completely marginalized right. and, and just sort of pushed out despite their intense dedication and also just their beautiful output in the art world. So two things. One, using, you know, this show, Sylvanage, I wrote for the show, um, the curator, London curator Zoe asked me to write an essay for Tate, etc. on the occasion of, of the exhibition, beautiful exhibition. I, it's astounding that it has been mounted. And, and so, I, and, I mean, and, and, you know, but it's one of those situations where it started in the UK at the Tate, and there were some real questions around whether that show was going to travel to America, right? And so it just gives you a glimpse of like, even now, as we say we were celebrating those artists and, you know, what they were up against, right? Mm -hmm. But to that point, I think there's two things that I always try to do. I try to make sure that we're not reenacting, you know, those processes of erasure now. And so I always think about what's on view now, but also what spaces are cultivating younger generations, right? Yeah. And so I think about Jenkins Johnson projects um, in Brooklyn. I think about the Underground Museum um, in Los Angeles. I think about, you know, Theastergate's um, uh, Art Bank um, in Chicago, right? Um, I think, and then I then I think in terms of like shows that are, are currently up now, um, there's a Charles White exhibition, as I mentioned, at MoMA. There's young artist Coyote Ojo at Metro's Gallery. So when I'm thinking about, you know, shows and in, in the history and kind of the, in ways in which we're thinking about this stuff, I really do think that, like, we need to make sure that we're not enacting kind of those same processes of erasure now. And so I think about spaces. And so I think about, you know, kind of institution building. And so I think about, you know, 
you know, Jing and Johnson projects, medium things, you know, We Buy Gold. I think about the Astor Gates, you know, project in Chicago, the Art, Sony Island Arts Bank. I think about the Underground Museum in Los Angeles. I think about Project Row Houses in Houston, right? I think about these spaces that are really about, like, continuing the work of past generations. And then, you know, there's a few shows that are up right now. You know, I think about across, you know, generational, you know, in Chicago, Martine Sims has a show at the Graham Foundation. Here in Brooklyn, obviously, we have Solo Nation. In Manhattan, we have Charles White at MoMA. And, you know, there's like a lot of other exhibitions kind of happening around the country that that we're like covering. And, and I'm kind of I just wrote about, for example, you know, I think one more other kind of fine point there is like, you know, when you're covering something, you know, I just wrote about uh, Warhol, for example, in the Sunday, it's last Sunday Times, right? And, I, you know, my editor there approached me and said, you know, do you want to write Warhol? I was like, no, I think I'm good. Like, you know, I think that, you know, we've said what needed to be said. And then, you know, she asked, are you sure? Is there no, is there not an angle? And I go, well, it might be interesting to just talk to kind of like artists who we generally don't talk to about Warhol's impact on culture about how he's affected them because i think there's also that other thing where you can't ghettoize these artists right they are artists first right they're not women they're not black whatever they're artists first right and you ask them and most of them will say some to some effect that right and so like they're affected by the culture too they're affected by our history too they're they're responding to our history and they're making you know art history right and so you know talking to glenn ligon mcleen thomas you know nina show abney you know julia wachtel to get these perspectives on his work that i had not known right and so um and so good article and so that was you know so that's also happening so even when you go into museum seek out those perspectives in dominant, you know, our historical histories. You know, that also reminds me of Nina Chanel Abney has a show up at Cam in Los Angeles. She has a show at Pace Prince right now. You know, Micheline Thomas is obviously opening a show at AGO in Toronto, but she also has a show at the Wexler Center in Ohio. Devin Shimioma has a show at the Warhol right now. He's a young painter. What's so exciting about this moment is there's so much you can see. And not only does it cut against kind of hegemonic structures, but it also cuts against communal biases, mm -hmm. right? And so people always ask, so what is black art? Go out and see the work and you'll get so many different perspectives on what the possibilities of black art can be. And so you're mentioning the fact that there is so much on mm -hmm. right now. And so it feels like we're in a moment of flux where black artists are being given a stage that hasn't been seen in the past few years. And so that to me feels like it's coming in this wake of the Black Lives Matter movement getting this national platform and then Obama leaving the presidency and Trump entering it. And so it feels like everyone is in a moment where regardless of what side you stand on, we're scared of the the sort of changing political atmosphere in the United States. And so it feels like the art world is reacting off of that. And for so long, the art world claimed to be an apolitical space that wasn't able to make their stand in these sorts of um, topics heard. And so now it feels like they're sort of backtracking on that. And 
in a way, it comes off as a sort of move towards trend rather than a genuine investment in these Black artists and their work and their livelihoods. And so I'm interested to hear from you, how can we combat that and ensure that these Black artists are being nurtured in these spaces and that curators are being hired onto permanent staff and critics are being given platforms rather than being handed one-off freelance jobs? Mm-hmm. And just ensuring that the Black arts world maintains its stature and is given its own voice rather than being given a voice by some ambiguous higher entity. I think that in this moment of people are making money, people can make more money. You know, I I really am... If white people want to throw money at shitty black art, feel free. You know, like I, I think that everyone needs to get paid. And I, so I'm, I'm like, I don't have a, you know, dog in, in that fight. But I do think that the conversation, as it is often presented, is two things. One, a historical. And two, it centers, again, whiteness in a conversation that really, you know, should not contain that. And so black artists have been making art for as long as this country has been around. They'll continue making art, Right. You know, the market is, you know, at the moment said to be, you know, like, you know, performing in ways that black artists hadn't seen before for a, a larger kind of group of them. I encourage that. You know, I don't have any market power, but if that, you know, I encourage that to continue happening. Um, but I think the kind of central question is how do we institution build, right? How do we kind of build into the system some of the gains that we're seeing now and I think that is around kind of making sure that we are creating, you know, our own pipelines, right? And and so some of those institutions that I I mentioned, it's like they're going to be around, right? And they're going to help change the next generation for, you know, uh, the art world for tomorrow. And I don't mean to be, you know, like totally optimistic, but I do think that we are certainly in a better position than we were before. I was at, uh, there was a gallery, Wachovia Gallery in Bedside, Black owned, right? She turned part of her house, the Ivy, turned part of her house into a gallery. And she's, you know, putting up, you know, really great works. And she asked me to come by to moderate a conversation with some of the artists. And, you know, we're having those conversations. Like, people are more so than now. I think the moment has given people license to make claims on space and make claims on, you know, blackness and art in ways that we hadn't, you know, that we did see. I I try to stay out of, like, we hadn't seen before because the 1960s we saw, yeah. right? Like, through the 90s, like, a lot, you know, I, you know, I wrote, I just recently wrote a, you know, essay on Ed Clark for his show that was at Mnuchin Gallery. And he was largely supported by black collectors until very recently. And those are stories you don't, you know, hear. And those are stories that, that like, for some reason, we don't know much of, you know? And so I, I think that there have been, there's been a collector base, right? There has been, you know, it needs to grow. It needs, you know, like any collector base. But there is an interest that I think that is misrepresented, you know? Because even when you think about museums, and I harp on museums, and I'm not, like, just, like, trying to, like, you know, like, say museums are the bad guy, because I do think they're wonderful institutions. But you think about the way that the reason why it might feel different is because you have museums using social media to tell a story that their collection don't reflect, (laughs) you know? Because Sotheby's um, released this study a couple of weeks ago. And what was interesting about it is that when you start looking at like what museums hold actually of these artists, it's very little to what you see in terms of their programming, what you see on their social media sites, or a gallery you know, that shows maybe some of the young, hip black artists, but don't represent them, right? 
that's a problem. You know, so I think that like we all can you know, kind of do better, but I, I think that like people are in a much better, black artists are in a much better position now than before. Um, and we need to figure out some way to make that, you know, sustainable. And I think that is by building our own institutions. Yeah. I have a question though, in terms of that, cause you talk about black artists, but mm -hmm. how about black curators, black yeah. critics, black, mm -hmm. you know, dealers, yeah. uh, is that true across the board? Or do you think that's a little different? Or do you think the black artist community is a little more advanced on that? I think the black artist community is definitely a little bit more advanced because I think when you start to think about curators, black curators, black collectors, there's a class issue that comes up there. And I think that right now, as much as like, you know, some of these curators are my friends and people I know and like, I totally respect, I think their scholarship is incredible. And But there is something that like a lot of these curators are coming from an upper middle class background. And that is not the only black perspective, right? We talked about Carrie James Marshall, right? We, you know, he's universally loved, but also one of like my central critiques of Carrie's work is that it is too grounded in middle-class mythology. And so that's the problem. We need to have the full conversation, right? So for example, I grew up in Chicago, but I was born in Cabrini Green housing projects, right? He has his whole garden series, right? I was like, I've never felt more alienated by a piece of artwork that is supposed to be trying to tell my story than looking at that that work by Carrie because That's there's so this but there's a beautification that that happens that is a part of his project mm -hmm. that was just not the case on the ground right and so and those buildings are all now gone by the way right they plan for, uh, there was a plan 2000 called the plan for transformation 1.6 billion dollar project to basically gut chicago of all the housing projects right and make them into mixed income communities and and so a lot of that history is gone a lot of the structures right there was a gentrification that happened right and so if you don't know that history and you look at carrie's work this particular series you're like Okay, you know, it's a really kind of idyllic, you know, way to look at it. Not saying that, like, the work doesn't operate in different ways, but that's a critique, you know, right? Whereas, you know, someone like, you know, Henry Taylor kind of lets it all hang out, right? And you see it, you know, Carrie is about, so I only bring up that example is because we have to have to figure out a way for multiple perspectives and curating and art. And even when we're praising something or praising, you know, the moment that there is room for critique. So let's talk a little bit about the projects you have coming up, uh -huh. because, you know, you're a man in demand. You know, you just curated your first show at Aperture this right. past summer. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. And then you also have a book coming out. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's exciting. I So I just curated a show this summer, a co-curated show this summer at Aperture, which was a really amazing experience. And I love that you're curating now. Yeah, That's I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, who would have known? Um, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I've known you for a very long time. Um, you know, and we start to kind of get, we start to go into conversations, you know, like I love magazine writing and writing online about art. But, you know, it, this summer I wrote, um, I'm a very busy person. This summer I wrote a series of catalog essays for uh, museum publications, um, some that are have been published, some that are coming out. I'm right, I wrote a, um, a really, I, I mean, if I do say so myself, um, 
uh, essay um, on the work of Deborah Roberts, who is emerging artist at f- in her 50s you know who's like having a really great you know t- you know moment um, i love that yeah you know like it. i'm emerging in my 50s you know um and can i tell you as an aside me. someone's to say that's not as common as you think someone was telling me yesterday even stan lee who just died the marvel yep. thing mm-hmm. supposedly up until 40 he failed at everything oh wow and then all of a sudden he became a so you know everyone should know everything is possible right <laughs> your process is your process that's right so in writing these catalog essays, Deborah's come out, or that book that, that I wrote for that comes out in March, I was like, oh, it might be interesting, or I might want to take some time to consider a topic, you know, over a longer period of time, right? I mean, we write all of it, you know, all three of us sitting here, we write at a clip, you know, yeah. like before I got here, I was working on another artist who has a show right now that you see, Lyle Ashton Harris at um, Salon 84. I was working on a piece for New York Magazine on him, you know, before I came to the studio. And and so I, I just wanted to consider things longer. And I got an opportunity to do a book with Aperture. It's called, it's, we don't have it, it's untitled at the moment, <laughs> because I'm really bad at titles, titling things. Um, I, neither, I never title my own work, really. But it's a book about black fashion photography now. And it's going to be out next October. And it's going to have an exhibition that, um, that travels with it as well, that kind of uses the book as a point of departure to kind of explore the history of black fashion photography and black fashion photographers and how those photographers largely kind of operated in the contemporary the kind of art world because the fashion world was so fucking mm-hmm. racist. Yep. And going all the way back to someone like James Vanderzee, who was, you know, shooting in his studio in Harlem, to someone like Malik Sidibe, who wouldn't be considered necessarily a fashion photographer, right. but like, have you seen those pictures? Those yeah. looks are violent. Their legacies have been the inheritance of such, you know, kind of amazing young fashion photographers or uh, black fashion photographers around the globe. Uh, one being, you know, Tyler Mitchell, obviously, who did the cover of Vogue yeah, um, no, with Beyonce. Well, and, you know what I I love about this when Jasmine and I were talking before this uh-huh. to talk you know there are there's the rare person who blends fashion and art and music culture and all these types of things the way you do right and why is that why do you think that that's not done more yep what interests you about that and how has it informed your writing about right. art well because I think that that's just the way that we live now right I think like you just if you're not I don't know that's because it's also just the way that I live I guess it's just very much like I have these kind of diverse groups of friends and like who are always I'm always trying to like you know my friend is working on a play I'm like oh like it's a play and maybe if you can get this person to do like set designer the only way to not you know to experience art is not just in a museum and you see it all around you and you're making the assumption and people you know audiences are making assumptions about what they see and criticizing what they see all the time. You just have to encourage that. And I think that like, when I looked at a Malik Sidibe, you know, photograph, for example, I was mostly taught, you know, connected to the fashion. And so I want to, you know, kind of talk, you know, about that, talk through that. And, you know, whereas, you know, someone like Renee Cox, who, you know, started her career in Paris as a fashion editor, that experience totally, that if you know that experience, it totally informs her images, right? right? And so I think that, like, I'm always interested in the inspiration behind those constructions. And often inspiration is everything from the rent to, <laughs> you know, some person you see walking down a street in a particular dress or blouse and it moves a certain way. And, you know, it's like it is inspiration is this thing that is, you know, vast. And I'm interested in kind of like seeing what those intersections are. And just on that note, I feel like 
the people who are the vanguards of this intersection of fashion and music and art at the same time, someone like Solange, someone like Derek Adams, are almost always young black people. And so I think that it sort of infiltrates into the rest of culture, right. whether or not without it's music or fashion, without without any acknowledgement mm-hmm. and sort of where that comes from and, and and the due that these young black artists are not being given for this culture that they have literally created with all of this history behind it and now given this ginormous platform via social media and right. via these publications right. and, and sort of the way that we can give these these young people their due for this this culture that they've created and that they are the backbone of. Right. I mean, and I think that you're absolutely right. I think that, like, that's also part of the motivation. I mean, I kind of went to New Orleans and wrote a profile on Solange. And, you know, recently I've just had um, a conversation, really amazing conversation with Derek Adams and Kirby Jean Raymond, who runs Pierre Moss, about their collaboration, right? Like, so then I start thinking about, okay, collaboration, who's collaborating? Okay, there, there seems to be, like, these black fashion designers and black artists are seem to do these collaboration and then I like now starting to concept this story out where it's like okay so there's Kirby and there's Derek okay Micheline brother Valley, right and so I'm like starting to kind of like okay well there's this thing that's happening in the black community around collaboration with artists and fashion designers do I see that in the larger art world okay at the Whitney there's at house Lada you know okay there's you know um Etudes and Henry Taylor did a collaboration, right? You know, Wells Bonner and her multiple collaborations, right? And so I was like, okay, well, that's a story. That's happening. That's something happening in culture. There are so many different, you know, inflection points around that. Why don't I see that story out there? And then it's like, okay, I need to figure out how I'm going to get that story out there. And I think that for me, it starts, it always starts like that. That's the process for me. It's like, okay, is it just me or am am I seeing something that's happening in a culture that I care about that people are not seeing or people have not highlighted? And so I'm always trying to do that. If someone wants to hire me to write that, I'm very much interested <laughs> in that. I mean, even just Solange and Telfar in, in exactly. the Guggenheim, Guggenheim of right. all places I didn't even think about is that. Yep. like... Yep. You're one of the only people there, weren't you? I was there, yeah. I was I was really... I, I mean, I had to... The write. rest of us didn't get invited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to scam my way in. Yes, I scammed my way in. It was really kind of an amazing... I think I scammed my way in and, I, and a friend in, too, because they were like really kind of like... <laughs> I was like, come on. I know like y'all are having your moment in the sun here, but like I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here and we're we're going to have to work together. Um but yeah, no, it was yeah. I mean, that was just even that even the idea that like Solange who has done collaborations with, you know, various artists, Michelin Thomas being one of them, right? Even the idea that like she was bold enough to take that type of space and that type yeah. of institution. And I was having a conversation and I was, you know, I and then I went to um, St. Louis to interview profile Glenn Ligon for Hyperallergic. And one of the things that he said in that conversation was like, I was like, so what do you, what, you know, what do you like, what artists inspire right now? He's like, well, I was at the Guggenheim once Solange is performing. And he, Glenn Ligon, world, you know. And so you're just like, okay. <laughs> This is something that people should know because we we like to kind of do this thing that like this artist sits here and this artist does this and it's like okay well Glenn was inspired by a Solange performance. Right. How do we show that in the culture? Because I you know it, it, and it speaks back to this idea that we're constantly being influenced by each other or accepting and rejecting what we're seeing right and that process is a you know a form of you know criticism and scrutiny that that everyone has and. 
and and I'm just always trying to tease that out in in some ways, you know. Well, I I keep wanting to talk to you, so we're gonna have to invite you back. I'll come back. Okay, so thanks so much, Antoine. It was such a pleasure, you know, and I'm glad you're still inspiring people because you certainly inspire us in all the work you do and and your dedication to the field. So thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. You can follow Antoine Sargent on Instagram and Twitter at at Sir Sargent, and be sure to check out his writing in the New York Times and elsewhere as well. A special thanks to Amani Fella for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.